Hey there, everybody. You are listening to This Show is So Gay. I'm your host, Ken Schneck. This is episode number 424. As always, you can get in touch with us by dropping us a line. Send an email on over to ken at thisshowissogay.com. Stroll on over to thisshowissogay.com to learn all about the fun things happening with our little gay radio show that could. You can follow us on Twitter. The handle is This Show Is So Gay. And of course, go on over to that Facebook. Type in This Show Is So Gay. Like us, because we sure as heck like you. We have an incredible show for you with one of my favorite people out there. He has not been on the show for many years. I will hold him accountable for that as well. Let me introduce him. Nathan Runkle is the founder and president of Mercy for Animals. For two decades, Nathan has overseen the organization's growth into a leading international force in the prevention of cruelty to farmed animals and promotion of compassionate food choices and policies. A nationally recognized speaker on animal advocacy, Nathan has presented at colleges, conferences, and so many other fora from coast to coast. He's been featured in hundreds of television, radio, and newspaper interviews, and has worked alongside elected officials, corporate executives, heads of international organizations, academics, farmers, celebrities, and film producers to pass landmark legislation and implement animal welfare policy changes. He just released his first book entitled Mercy for Animals, One Man's Quest to Inspire Compassion and Improve the Lives of Farm Animals. It is in my hand right this very second. I consumed it over the past 72 hours. I have a lot of the feels, which we will talk about. But first, Nathan, welcome back to This Show is So Gay. It is such an honor to be back. It's been far too long. It has been far too long. I must highlight to our listeners, you were first on this show eight and a half years ago in March of 2009. I think you were only nine years old. That sounds about right. Yeah, the math adds up. (laughs) How do you go about even wrapping your mind? I mean, you have a book to wrap your mind around it, but just even verbally, how do you wrap your mind around everything that's happened over the past couple decades with you? Well, it's been incredibly exciting, and it has been deeply rewarding and fulfilling. You know, the the organization has just blossomed. We have over 130 employees in six countries now, and our work and policies and laws that we've helped enact um, affect over 1 billion animals every single year. So, um Honestly, it's uh, it's just such a joy to wake up every morning and be empowered to make the world a kinder place and work with such incredible, thoughtful, dedicated people. We are going to talk all about the book, and we're going to talk about a lot of those people, but we have to talk about you a little bit first. Where would you say that Nathan Runkle ends and Mercy for Animals begins? Is there some delineation there? There is, and, and there's a lot more than there, there once was. I think there, there was certainly a period of time where it was all wrapped up into, into one, but there's, there's been a, a sort of um, intentional, conscious uncoupling um, of myself and, and the organization in terms of identity. Uh, you know, I, I live and breathe the, the mission and the work of the organization. It is, to me, the ultimate expression of love to care about animals and to drive uh, change in this world that is a reflection of that. But at the same time, you know, it's important for me that um, I am more than and separate from my my work. So, uh, you know, the last few years have been also filled with just an incredible amount of personal growth um, in so many different areas. And 
um, expanding my my mind and my my heart and my my being. Um, and I found it to be important not only as a human being as an individual, but I think it's really um, further enriched my my work and my advocacy and my ability to understand and relate to people from broad backgrounds. What I hear you saying is that it is perhaps important to have a work-life balance. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think the reality is, especially in the animal protection movement, but I, I think in any social justice movement and any field where people are facing hardships and, and trauma on a regular basis or going up against societal norms and really trying to, to push things forward, there, there's a lot of burnout. Um, yeah. And I, I've seen this in the animal movement and in other movements. So to me, um, self-care has become part of my job description because I, I understand that to really see meaningful uh, change um, on the issue of animal protection, but I think any issue that, that, that we face um, as, as people, we have to take a, a lifelong view and a lifelong perspective. And so for me, it's become really clear that taking care of myself so that I can be in this for the long haul, um, so that, that activism and advocacy work is sustainable for me, um, is, is really important. And that means, um, yeah, self-care in all of its various forms. Let's talk about Nathan, the change maker. What would you say, Nathan, that you are inherently good at? What what skills come naturally to you in doing this work? Oh gosh, probably none. <laughs> <laughs> I think one one of the, the the biggest skills is just not giving up. Yeah, uh, perseverance. Um, I, I think you know I'm going on 18 years since starting the organization, uh, becoming aware of these issues. 20 over 20 years ago. And I think part of the success that, that I've been fortunate enough to be a part of is just weathering storms and picking myself up when things um, have, have been challenging and, um, you know, just always pushing ahead and, and having a, a growth mindset of learning from adversity, learning from um, past mistakes and just always uh, wanting to, to do better. So I think that that's honestly um, one of the strengths. I think um, I also have a lot of empathy, um, certainly for, for animals and, and people as well. And I think being able to show up as authentically as possible and, um, you know, relate and connect with, with people and be open to learning and listening um, has also been, been really helpful for me. If our listeners were to take Nathan Runkle's Learning Annex class in activism, having done this for so long and interacted with so many people, what's one of those skills that you see out there that everybody needs to work on? What, what could we be doing better? Yeah, I think, it's, I think it is communication, and a big part of communication is, is listening. You know, I think that not only in terms of vegan advocacy or animal rights advocacy, but I think just in, in general in this country, um, we don't listen enough and we don't um, have compassion enough for those who we are hoping to influence. Um, and, and I think that everyone's doing the best that they can with what they have under the, the, their current situation. Um, so I view you know, my role largely as um, helping to inspire people to elevate um, themselves to hopefully like their highest self. Um, and to me, compassion for animals uh, really is in alignment with the beliefs and the values that so many people already hold. Most people 
already believe in the golden rule and treating others the way that we want to be treated and being kind and fair and all of all of those those, those wonderful values. Um, and, and I believe that uh, you know caring about animals um, is is something that we all have in common. Um, and so having conversations in, in a really you know respectful, um, sensitive way, I think. Um, can inspire people to to look at things like their food choices in, in a way that they haven't before. Yeah. When I talk to my college students about possible careers for them, we, we always distinguish between volunteering, careers, and vocation. It strikes me this is vocation for you. Yeah, I and mean, this is this is a, a life mission. And um, it is, you know, like I said, we have uh, 130 employees at the organization now, and every everyone here views this as, as more of a job. This is a calling, and um, that's part of what makes it so wonderful to, to come to work every day and to work with people that, that are just so purely motivated um, by, by the work that they're, that they're doing. We're going to talk a lot about the intersections between the work that you do and certainly LGBTQ advocacy and similarities and differences there. But one of the things that we've often talked about over the past 10 years of doing this show is is the difficulties of younger people getting involved in activism and how sometimes it can be perceived as ageist. You you haven't put in your time yet, Nathan. You don't have a voice at the table. That's something you've encountered. Yeah, well, you know, I became vegetarian at 11, as I said, started the organization at 15, and for a long time in, in the beginning of, of the organization, um, people wanted me to sort of lead with my age, and I was sort of tokenized as a young advocate. And it was important to me that I was taken seriously based on the merits of what I was speaking to, um, the merits of the issues that I was um, helping to advance. And, you know, to me, I never wanted my age to be. Um, the reason why someone did or did not listen to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was definitely many years of, I think, sort of facing facing that. Um, now the beauty of, of being 33 is that my age doesn't really come up as, <laughs> as an impediment um, to the work that I do. But people often say young, young people are the future uh, of the world, the future of the movements, whatever they are. And to me, I mean, young people are the leaders of today. They are the leaders of um, so many of, of these um, these causes that are so vital to the health and sustainability of our, our planet and, and society. So, um, you know, w- we do a lot of work at Mercy for Animals with, with young people, whether it's through fellowship programs at colleges or volunteer opportunities. Um, and and I find some of the, the deepest inspiration and some of the like, purest hearts on, on these issues come from, from young people. Well, we have a ton to talk about with the book. Again, listeners, the name of the book is Mercy for Animals, One Man's Quest to Inspire Compassion and Improve the Lives of Farm Animals. Having immersed myself and read every word over the past 72 hours, you are aware that it inspires a ton of emotions, right? I I would imagine already you've received a ton of feedback. Yeah, I mean, the the book is largely partly memoir it's it's my story of going from a would-be fifth generation crop farmer to founding an international animal rights organization it's also the story of incredibly brave uh, people who become undercover investigators and go into factory farms and slaughterhouses but it's also the story of the animals that we 
rescue that our investigators are not able to rescue, but um, come into contact with. And it was important to me that the book be based on stories, true stories, um, versus just a lot of um, stats and statistics, which it certainly includes that as well. Um, but I wanted I wanted stories over stats. Uh, I, I didn't want this to be a super heavy academic book, but one that has heart and one in which people could really um, understand and, to re- and relate to on an emotional level. And, um, you know, part of that is sharing my coming out story, being bullied, being assaulted, losing my mother to cancer. Um, but again, a lot of it is, is just um, the stories of these animals. And there's no way to authentically talk about the situation facing farm animals in factory farms and slaughterhouses without it being emotional and heartfelt. Because the truth is, is that these factory farms and slaughterhouses, they don't just break the bones and the the skin of animals. They really break hearts and family bonds and spirits of these animals as well. And um, I'm, I, the response has been, you know, really overwhelming. I, I had a lot of people say that, you know, they cried multiple times reading yes. the book and they needed to set it down. And, um, you know, it, it really sticks with them. And, um, you know, I, I, that resonates with me. I certainly cried a number of times writing the book. Um, but I hope that people ultimately will walk away from the book feeling empowered and inspired and seeing through these stories the change and the impact that individuals can have um, and the creativity and, and um, innovation that can be used in being an advocate um, on behalf of a top, um, an issue and that there are just so many paths that are available to us to, to drive change in the world. Yeah, let me be clear. I cried multiple times, and multiple times I had to put it down and take a breath. It was it was a lot, because you read some of these examples, and I think you do so well to explain the plight of these animals as like actual characters in the book, because they are actual beings in this world. And so when cruelty is done upon them in just the most awe-inspiring ways, I'm yelling at the book, and I'm, I'm hoping that you can hear me, because I'm hoping a lot of people are yelling at the book, because it's... It, almost defies conception some of the some of the cruelty that's out there yeah and the book is is a small sprinkling you know, yeah we've done 60 undercover more than 60 undercover investigations and maybe a dozen of them are mentioned in the book um and you know i've profiled just a few of our investigators i mean one of the biggest challenges of the book was there was so much content there were so many stories there were so many investigations that were important and that were compelling in terms of what what we found and what the, you know the animals that we had to leave behind. Um, so I hope that people have, walk away with a, with a much deeper understanding of of how serious um, the the issue is of factory farming and just how dire the situation is yeah. um, for these for these animals. Um, but as I said, it, uh, it it's a book that has has a lot of heart because there's no way to talk about the topic without it. But again, I, I, I wanted to leave people on, on a really empowering and inspiring note because um, at the end of the day, we can all make choices about what we do um, when we learn about cruelty and violence in this world. Um, and the, the truth of the matter is there's a, there's a lot that we can all do um, to help animals in this regard. 
Yeah. I mean, this is your fourth time on the show, and I felt like I knew you pretty well the first three times, and then I read this book, and I'm like, oh my gosh. Were there moments where you were thinking, well, do I leave this out about myself? How much do I put in? How do you strike that balance of what to share with the reading audience? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I I worked with uh, a writer, Gene Stone, who's, who's written over 40 books and a dozen New York Times bestsellers, and he he really helped guide the process for the memoir part of the book because my, you know, I'm the type of person that doesn't post a lot, a lot of personal images on social media. I'm not someone that's living my life in a public way. Uh, that's just not my personality. I'm, a, I'm an introvert. I sort of have a few close friends and don't broadcast many sort of personal details outward. Um, but Gene really sort of encouraged me and pulled a lot of these more personal things out for the book and sort of instilled in me the importance of, of being able to be vulnerable and and, and humanize um, you know myself and, and the, the organization story um, in this way. So I'm I'm sort of willing to do whatever it, it takes if it if it may be helpful um, for animals. And so that's that's why I was willing to sort of bare parts of my soul in the book. Um, it's not sort of my, my typical personality traits, but you know, there were things in the book that I hadn't even talked to my therapist about um, and then putting it out into the world um, is a vulnerable experience, but ultimately a very cathartic experience to sort of um, come to sort of face some of these these traumatic events from, you know, parts of my life and ex- examine them and write about them and then sort of release it um, into the world and be totally okay with however they're received. Um, so, and part of writing the book was interviewing, you know, family members and my dad and my grandma and my sister in ways that, um, I just hadn't really had these types of conversations, some of these conversations with them leading up to it and being able to do it through the lens of I'm writing a book and I want your perspective on, you know, mom's final days before she passed and, you know, who she was as a child. Um, it was really, it was really quite powerful, um, from a life uh, reflection standpoint and and I think has helped with a lot of personal growth as well. You're 15 years old. You are put in a chicken suit. You're already on this mission, and, and this is what happens. You, you, you are, you're doing volunteering there, and you're staging action, and, and you wrote, Not far from us, a group of gay activists was practicing civil disobedience. One by one, they would walk peacefully up to the entrance of the convention center, try to go in and be refused entry. They were then arrested one after another. I started crying inside my chicken costume. I was so moved by these people, all willing to stand up for and be arrested for gay rights, standing up for me at a time when I wouldn't stand up for myself. There's so many different pieces to that story, but I want to go with the hopeful piece that, that we keep shouting out. My gosh, look how far you've come. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, and, and I talk in the book about, like I said, I went vegetarian at 11, went to my first animal rights conference at 13, started MFA at the age of 15, came out really when I was 18. Um, so there was a there were years in between me starting to find my voice as an animal advocate before I found my voice as, you know, even being my authentic self and, and you know, being comfortable with my sexuality and coming out in that regard. So that that little um, blurb that, that you read was at the Southern Baptist Convention. So, you know, there were God hates fags protesters and there were people getting arrested and 
um, in this chicken costume, and it was, you know, just so deeply moving. But it was more difficult for me at that time in my life um, to stand up for myself than it was to stand up for animals because um, when people would speak negatively about animals and say, well, animals, you know, they're not, they're not worthy. They're put here for us to eat. This is just the way that it is. It wasn't personal, but when people would say, you know, gays, you know, your relationships are sins or your love doesn't matter. Like that's personal. Um, so it took, you know, it's quite a, quite a journey just for me at that young age to come and sort of stand strongly, um, in, in, my own truth um, and, and be able to advocate for myself. Yeah. Again, listeners, we're here with Nathan Runkel, the founder and president of Mercy for Animals. His book was just released, Mercy for Animals, One Man's Quest to Inspire Compassion and Improve the Lives of Farm Animals. In the book, as you mentioned, you profile so many of your undercover investigators. I cannot wrap my mind around these people. I, I just, I absolutely cannot, Nathan. I, I hear these stories or I, I read these stories that you put out there, how they, they came forward and they said, you know, I can help with this work. And all I kept thinking is, uh, Nathan, I can't help you with this work. The amount of fortitude that goes into being one of these people, I, truly, I cannot wrap my mind around it. And the truth is that most people can't. And that's why, to me, these incredible individuals are the unsung heroes of the animal protection movement. I mean, they operate in the shadows to shine a light on the abuse that 9 billion land animals suffer every single year in factory farms and slaughterhouses in this country. Just, you know, the worst abuse that you could imagine. Animals in cages where they can't even turn around, mutilated without painkillers, separated from their families, having their throats slit while they're conscious. But we have to shine a light on this. Otherwise, we can't push for change. We can't push for laws to be updated, for policies from corporations to evolve, for just us, Americans, consumers, to wake up to what these animals face. So these investigators, they risk everything. Um, you know, in, in some countries that we do investigations in, they're really risking their lives just to, to do this work. Um, they're certainly putting themselves in um, physical uh, danger. Uh, slaughterhouses are one of the most dangerous jobs in this country. Um, you know, not only do people suffer from carpal tunnel syndrome, but um, amputations from equipment. Uh, it's just incredibly brutal work. Um, so they're doing that. But equally uh, difficult, they're facing emotional trauma. You know, these are people, yeah. our investigators are vegan animal rights activists. These are people that care so much about animals that they're willing to leave their friends behind, their family behind, even their significant others behind for months on end to go work out of, you know, dumpy motel rooms out in the middle of nowhere, um, pit, wire themselves up with hidden cameras, you know, shovel manure for eight, 10 hours a day, you know, work um, in, in the slaughterhouse. It's just, it's just brutal. It is, it is not the sort of sexy James Bond, you know, um, view that some people might have of investigative work, but it's because of them that we, that we're able to expose the truth and that we're able to to drive so much of, of the changes that I mentioned before. And not to be trite, but can we just remind our listeners or anybody reading the book, please don't try this at home. This has to be very coordinated, (laughs) correct? That's right. You know, these are sophisticated, um, operations, we have an entire investigations department. We hire about 
less than probably 1% of the people that apply to be investigators. And then of those, about half of them will actually make it through training. So probably 0.5% of the people that that say they are, they're going to be an investigator actually become an investigator. But the backgrounds of these folks are, are diverse. I mean, we have people that used to work at animal sanctuaries providing direct care to cows and pigs and chickens that have been rescued from factory farms to former police officers um, who are investigators. But they go through extensive training. The camera equipment they use is state-of-the-art. It's, it's made by um, a covert um, company that makes equipment for the FBI and CIA. Um, so we you know, we don't take this work lightly. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a group of really thoughtful um, professionals that are, that are overseeing it. And you are okay with the fact that I will never be applying for one of those positions? <laughs> I'm totally okay with that, okay. yeah. <laughs> wanna... You know, I, I, talk, I, I talk in the book about people finding their own unique voice as an advocate on, on any issue. Um, and this notion that one size certainly does not fit all and that I think diversity is the strength of any movement. And, you know, I talk about people who have made the um, strategic activist decision to um, stay in business and be entrepreneurs and earn to give. So they're actually donating an incredible amount of their personal wealth to fund full-time positions at animal organizations. In some, some cases, there are individuals, um, entrepreneurs who are funding you know, a dozen full-time people working in the movement, and that's their form of activism. I talk about a vegan race car driver who yeah. uses her platform to promote plant-based eating to, you know, NASCAR fans. And I talk about a former Burger King executive who sort of saw the light and started a plant-based meat company as a way of using his business and food ex- experience to help animals. So I think that's where you sort of get into this sweet spot of what, makes your heart sing what is sustainable what do you enjoy um that can have a positive contribution to the world and certainly you have literally found your voice um as a way of, of doing that so no need to apply to okay. Okay. <laughs> my competitive side kicked in when i heard about the one percent thing but then i reminded myself <laughs> i cannot do that work i can't do it you know a lot of what you were writing about in this path to create change reminded me of marriage equality in that It struck me that cases should be very coordinated, that in order to create the maximum amount of change, you don't necessarily want random people without the resources bringing suits forward, correct? Yeah, you know, I think that with any advocacy work, we have to be more than right. We have to be effective. And to be effective, we oftentimes need to be strategic. So, you know, I think... I hope that that people um, will walk away from the book with also a, a deeper understanding of sort of the the strategy um, that is utilized by by Mercy for Animals, um, whether it's supporting massive statewide initiatives like um, Proposition Two in two thousand eight that we helped pass, or um, using these investigations to help oftentimes pressure big companies like Nestle, which I talk about in the book, into adopting international policy changes. You know, it's it's that work that um, can impact millions and millions of animals' lives. All right. I have a list of random topics, and we have to get through all these because they're all really important to me. Cage-free, not necessarily cruelty-free, correct? That's right. You know, ca- cage-free is uh, certainly more meaningful than, than conventional eggs, where 
birds are literally, I mean, the, the traditional way of producing eggs, which is what most of them are, if you go to the grocery store or just go to a restaurant, um, probably one of the cruelest um, practices faced by animals is they, they're called battery cages. And these birds are kept confined anywhere from five to seven or eight birds inside a cage the size of a file cabinet drawer. And these birds are crowded together. They can't even spread their wings. They can't walk or perch or roost or dust bathe. It is a, it is an incredible nightmare for these animals. Cage free means the birds are not in these individual cages, but oftentimes they are in huge windowless warehouses and they're packed together by the tens of thousands. They don't have access to the outdoors. Um, they suffer from um, pecking. You know, birds establish a pecking order, but they can only do that up to a certain number of birds. And once there are tens of thousands, sort of wreak social chaos and the birds can't establish that pecking order. So you have a lot of issues um, with cannibalism and pecking. Um, but also the, the chicks at the hatchery, the male chicks who won't grow up to produce eggs are killed. Um, some of them are ground up alive. Others are, are gassed or suffocated. And then the birds used in the, the cage tree production, once their production declines, they are slaughtered. Um, just like birds in battery cage systems. So it's a far cry from what most people would consider humane. Yeah. Okay. So that's one myth that cage-free equals cruelty-free. Another myth that we all define the word humane in the same way, because I read your book and not everyone defines the word humane in the same way. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of humane washing as we would consider it. And a lot of it has to do with this growing um, sensitivity towards our relationship with animals and our treatment of animals. And I, I talk in the book about the American Humane Association, which has the word humane in, in, its, in its name, but in practice really um, sort of just codifies much of what animal abuse industries are already doing. Um, and they have a label, American Humane Certified, that you can find on certain butterball turkey products, on Amer um, foster farm chicken products, uh, just all over the place. And consumers see the word humane and they expect that these animals would be um, treated with a certain amount of respect. But in truth, um, it's really they're really just rubber stamping what the, the poultry industry is already doing. Um, and we, in fact, did an investigation at foster farm facilities in California, including a slaughterhouse that documented workers punching, kicking birds, ripping their feathers out, birds having their throats that well conscious, going into scalding tanks while still alive um, at this so-called American Humane Certified facility. And in fact, it, our investigation led to criminal animal cruelty convictions in the case. So um, yeah, I mean, it is a term that can be thrown around um, without any real verification. So, um, you know, we, we keep an eye on that as much as possible to really encourage people to, to be mindful of, of what they're eating and not fall into a trap of humane washing. And last myth that I do want to cover, which, which comes up a lot when I have these conversations with people, you know, I've been a vegetarian for 
15, 16 years now. And and when I contemplate the move to veganism, I, I've told everybody this. I, I was a vegan for one month. It was March of 2009, and it's because Nathan Runkle was live on the air and challenged me to be a vegan for a month. And that was my month being a vegan. And the book definitely brought me back to that place of, okay, can I do this? Can I, can I do this again? But there are some associations that a lot of people have that, that you need to have a lot of money in order to be a vegan, that, that you just can't afford to be a vegan uh, unless you have a nice income. Yeah. Well, you know, a, a vegan diet is kind of like any other diet. You could be eating foie gras and filet mignon every night on a meat-based diet and, you know, be, be dining at Michelin star restaurants and it's going to be very expensive. Um, the same is true with, with a vegan diet. I mean, you, you can be eating a lot of prepackaged uh, products, a lot of, you know, meat alternatives, dairy alternatives that, that, that can um, be sold at a, at a higher sort of niche market rate. But the truth is, is that um, it can be quite less it could be it can be um cheaper to eat a plant-based diet if you're eating you know whole foods if you're shopping in the bulk bin you know section if you're you know bean burritos are cheaper than most beef burritos at places so it's um it's it's something that absolutely can be done and in fact it's kind of the default if you look at developing countries you know they're not eating a heavy meat-based diet most of them are eating plant-based diets because it is you know cheaper and more efficient to produce so um you know, we have resources on our website, ChooseVets.com and NorseyForAnimals.com that sort of dives into this. But it does raise a, a larger sort of fundamental question of why is it in some some cases more expensive to buy bottled water than it is to buy milk? Right. Um, you know, these, this really raises the issue of government subsidies because clearly it's very resource intensive to raise a cow. And it's, it's really not efficient from an energy uh, conversion standpoint. I mean, chicken, which is one of the most efficient, quote-unquote, converters of feed, it still takes nine calories of plants to be fed to the chicken just for them to be alive and grow um, as it does to get a calorie, of, uh, a calorie out of the chicken meat. So, um, you know, it's, it's so much of this is our, of, of low-cost um, meat, dairy, and egg products is, are artificially propped up by these government subsidies, and a lot of them going to very big meat companies. Um, and the hidden cost is not only animal cruelty, but you know there are so many human health problems that are associated with diets that are high in animal foods, meat, you know, dairy, etc. So I think we need to one understand that you can very much have an affordable plant-based diet now um, by by making certain food choices and being mindful of that, but. The larger issue is broccoli should never be more expensive than beef, right. and we we need to address um, those issues as well, which is really a policy issue and is a reflection of the meat, dairy, and egg industry lobbies and the agricultural lobbies being so large and so powerful that they've been able to influence the farm bill in a way that supports them but penalizes um, you know plant-based production in many ways. 
Well, as we've mentioned, you end the book with quite a bit of hope. Uh, a lot of great suggestions for readers out there. We should all be eating fruits across the rainbow. I am convinced that you made up some names of fruits, and because I finished the book an hour ago, I haven't had a chance to look some of them up, but I'm pretty convinced that you like slipped a friend in there in some way and made up some fruits. But other than that, you also stress the importance of donation, right? And it's kind of that eye roll moment that, that so many people have of like, yes, of course, I'm going to go donate. What else can I do? And then you return to say, no, 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 this is really important. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, look, it's, it's important in the animal protection movement. It's important in the LGBT movement, the, the women's movement, the environmental movement. The truth is, is that money is power, it's energy. Um, and when utilized by effective organizations on effective programs and campaigns, have the ability to drive incredible progress. And, you know, for, for Mercy for Animals, we, we actually can calculate what $1 to the organization will do through the policies that, that we enact and the number of animals affected. And $1 to Mercy for Animals means that one animal is spared from ever being born into the horrors of factory farming through our diet change and institutional meat reduction work. But it also means that 111 animals will have their lives improved through the works to get major companies to move away from cruel factory farm practices or passing laws. Um, that is a huge number um, for, for $1. So you can imagine sort of the scalability of that impact. Um, the more that people donate, the more animals that can be helped. And, you know, I think we fall into this sort of mental and emotional trap um, as humans, and, and I talk a little bit about this in the book, how we are far more likely to relate and emotionally respond to the plight of one individual than masses. And they've done studies on with fundraising of if you if you ask someone to donate to help one one person with a name who's suffering from uh, leukemia and needs treatment versus asking people to donate for you know, um, age treatment or malnutrition in Africa, and the numbers are just so much more massive, people will go with the individual because it's personal. They know their name. Um, we can relate to that. And I think part of it is just being human. I think we sort of evolved to be able to relate to a very small group of individuals and anything larger we sort of shut down emotionally on. So I think for, for a lot of people, when they, they, they look at charitable giving, they think of, okay, which organizations do I have a relationship with? Which one do I like? Which one, you know, is there a specific individual that sort of tugs on my heartstring? But I talk in the book about having more of an effective altruist mindset, thinking about how do we do the most good with the limited time, energy, resources that we have. Um, and, and I think that when we start looking um, at our giving or our volunteering um, or giving back through that lens, we're able to have a much larger uh, impact. And you know that certainly makes the world a better place. Well, I will certainly make a donation before this hour is done. And I encourage everybody to do that. I'll give you a link in a second. What's coming up for you, sir, that you're excited about? <laughs> oh, gosh, so much. Um, one thing is uh, I'm a, a co-founder of Circle V, which is a vegan music festival um, happening in Los Angeles on November 18th. Uh, Moby is uh, one of the producers, as well as Tony Canal from No Doubt and Now Dream Car. And there'll be dozens of vegan food vendors and just internationally 
recognized speakers, uh, artists from Waka Flocka Flame to Moby to Rory to Dreamcar to Reggie Watts and others. So super excited about Circle V. People are interested. They can go to circlev.com for more information. I'm also really excited about the international work um, that the organization is doing. You know, um, we believe that where an animal is born or hatched shouldn't dictate whether they lead lives filled with misery or compassion. So we're really bringing a lot of our uh, hard-hitting programs to the international stage, and it's um, really having quite a measurable impact. This is what you listeners need to go do right this very second. Stroll on over to mercyforanimals.org. That's mercyforanimals.org. You can learn more about their incredible work. I urge you to hit that donate button. I just did. You can do the same. The name of the book is Mercy for Animals, One Man's Quest to Inspire Compassion and Improve the Lives of Farm Animals. It shredded me. It inspired me. Um, it annoyed my cat because I kept grabbing him and hugging him closer. And he's like, it's enough. It's enough with this type of work. Uh, but it's it's incredible. I, I love that we have been chatting for, you know, for nine years, Nathan, and for these words to come out there and affect people in such a profound way. It, it's a gift, Nathan. I hope that you're proud. I hope you know the great good that you have done in this world. And, and I know there's more to come. Oh, thank you. Well, I look forward to another nine years and having this conversation and uh, a nine years or a decade from now and uh, being able to reflect back on all the positive change that uh, that we've seen because people have taken action. All right, folks, and we are back. Well, we still have tons of time left on this week's episode, so let's get to all of the latest LGBTQ news that's out there. You can't go on social media this week without reading about Kevin Spacey, and I suspect this story will just keep going and going in case you missed it, and I don't actually see how it's possible that you would have missed this story, but... Anthony Rapp, who I just adore, which is separate from this story, but I love Anthony Rapp. I grew up on the musical Rent. You could not go to NYU when I went to NYU in the late 90s and go by an NYU dorm room without hearing Rent. So Anthony Rapp, just the core of my developmental experience. Well, he put out there publicly this week, he's been saying it privately for years at various different events and and some of the interviews, including with The Advocate, it was mentioned there as well, that when he was 14 years old, he was a child actor when he was 14 years old, that Kevin Spacey, who was 26 at the time, effectively and essentially forced himself upon Anthony Rapp. Well, Kevin Spacey's response to this has been just vilified across the media, across the LGBTQ spectrum. He put out there an apology, kind of, saying, well, I don't remember that. I must have been drunk, and it was 30 years ago, but I'm sorry if... 
and he did use the word if Anthony Rapp experienced that. Well, Netflix has since said, you know what? We are not running another season of House of Cards. The Emmys, the Emmys have taken away his Emmy Award, taken away Kevin Spacey's Emmy Award. And as many people in the LGBTQ community have predicted, more and more people are going to start stepping up. And indeed, one just has a filmmaker, a filmmaker, Tony Montana, has said that Kevin Spacey sexually assaulted him in 2003. He was speaking to an entertainment website, Radar. He said, quote, I went up to order a drink and Kevin came up to me and put his arm around me. He was telling me to come with him to leave the bar. He put his hand on my crotch forcefully and grabbed my whole package and then he followed him into the bathroom and again was trying to force himself upon this filmmaker in 2003. So many different parts of this story. Again, there are some suspicions that more and more people will raise their voices and say, this happened to me with Kevin Spacey. But there's also the piece that we don't want to miss of this story where, sure, Kevin Spacey has now publicly come out. And I have been saying for years and years, right, like I'm just one person, but I was at a gay bar with Kevin Spacey in the late 90s when I was living in New York City. And so when he was constantly dodging the questions in the media about whether or not he was gay, it was so cringeworthy and so eye-rolling. I do believe that, yes, people should have a right to their privacy, but at the same time, this is a guy who's a two-time Oscar winner, who's in Broadway shows, who's on TV shows, and he could do so much good by coming out. His career is clearly secure. Why not come out? Or at least stop being coy and dodging the question and putting these women on his arms for award shows. So yeah, I was never a huge fan of Kevin Spacey's. But that he came out in a way that conflated coming out with pedophilia that really did not work for anyone, and it has been roundly condemned across the spectrum, across social media, across the LGBTQ community. Again, it's a two-paragraph statement that he put out there this week, one paragraph being the kind of half-apology that he offers to Anthony Rapp, and the other paragraph being him coming out of the closet saying that he is living as a gay man. It would have been amazing had those two paragraphs been nowhere near each other. This is not a time to come out. Out. Billy Eichner had a tweet earlier this week, and I can't quote it word for word because I don't have it in front of me, but essentially said, Kevin Spacey has done the impossible. He found the wrong time to come out. And indeed, he did find the wrong time to come out. It should have been nowhere near all of these allegations with Anthony Rapp, these other filmmakers. So there will be more to come on Kevin Spacey. Mark my words. Well, as I promise you pretty much every single week during the news roundup, yet another update on President Trump's transgender military ban. Parts of President Donald Trump's ban on transgender people serving in the military have been blocked. A federal judge in Washington, D.C. has filed an injunction blocking the order this week, ruling that a lawsuit brought by five active soldiers with more than 60 combined years of service was likely to win. U.S. District Judge Colleen Collar Cottley wrote this week that transgender members of the military who had sued over the change were likely to win their lawsuit, and she then barred the Trump administration from reversing course. Judge Collar Cottley wrote this quote, The court holds that the plaintiffs are likely to succeed on their Fifth Amendment claim as a form of government action that classifies people based on their gender identity and disfavors a class of historically persecuted 
and politically powerless individuals, the president's directives are subject to a fairly searching form of scrutiny. The judge also added this quote, the effect of the court's order is to revert to the status quo with regard to accession and retention that existed before the issuance of the presidential memorandum. However, though, my friends, a proposed ban on federal funds being used for gender reassignment surgery in the military will be allowed to proceed. President Trump stirred anger just to remind you this past July when he tweeted out that he would be imposing a ban on transgender soldiers serving openly in the military. It was a string of tweets, but this has been met with a ton of opposition, not the least of which by several Republicans, Republican senators, including John McCain, and there have been a ton of different lawsuits that have been filed. So this is the first lawsuit that there has been a response to, and we have seen now an injunction on this ban on trans people serving openly in the military. Sarah Kate Ellis, the president and CEO of GLAAD, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, said this, quote, the U.S. District Court's temporary halt of the trans military ban is a major step forward in exposing President Trump's policy as a hate-fueled attack on some of the bravest Americans who serve and protect our nation. Today's victory reflects what a majority of Americans have been saying, that transgender service members should be thanked and not relegated to second-class citizenship. So there are more cases to be decided, but I guess if President Trump thought that he could send out three tweets and effectively ban trans people who want to serve in the military... Right? Not everybody wants to do that. It's only a small percentage of the population that actually wants to serve in the military. These are people who are stepping up and want to serve. Well, President Trump thought that in three tweets he could ban them from serving. What we are seeing now, that is not the case. Let's turn to entertainment news. The Disney Channel. The Disney Channel. They have aired their first ever coming out scene. Many are saying it was just absolutely incredible. In the season two premiere of Andy Mack, 13-year-old Cyrus, one of Andy's best friends, begins to realize that he has feelings for fellow teen Jonah. News of this storyline has outraged one million moms. You know One Million Moms. They are an anti-LGBT campaign group. They are launching a boycott of the Disney Channel. We'll talk about that in a second. Well, in this storyline, after Jonah breaks up with his girlfriend, Amber, and quickly asks out Andy, Jonah decides to open up to his and Andy's other best friend, Buffy. The subsequent scene in an episode watched by 1.62 million people is emotive, realistic, and beautiful. That's what all the critics are saying. After a clearly emotional, hesitant Cyrus says he hasn't ordered food. Buffy tells him, you're scaring me. And he replies, I'm scaring me too. And then he reveals, quote, last night when we were watching Andy and Jonah, you asked me, am I happy for Andy? And I said, yes, I'm happy for Andy, but I'm also not happy. And Buffy says, how come? Are you jealous? And he nods, tearing up. And she asks him, Cyrus, do you like Andy? And he shakes his head, mouthing the word no. And Buffy says, you like Jonah. He nods and looks down, fearing the worst. It's an amazing coming out scene. I just watched it. So this makes a huge, huge difference. This is the Disney Channel. This is the Disney Channel. And it's the first ever coming out story that has ever been featured on the Disney Channel in this way. So this makes a difference. So many people are saying, my gosh, this would have changed my life. I, and I would agree, by the way, if I had seen this growing up, if I had seen a coming out story like this, 
any inclinations towards feeling, oh my gosh, I just, this is, I'm an abomination, which I certainly had those feelings at various parts. Anytime you don't see yourself represented in any way in the media, you feel like, well, I'm an outlier. I am wrong. I am different. This is not good. There's nobody like me out there. This is difficult and lonely and anxiety producing and a little bit depressing and all of those different things, right? And that's just for me. It gets so much worse for other kids who don't have the support systems. I had incredible support systems. So to have this storyline on the Disney Channel is a huge, huge deal. So congratulations to the Disney Channel, and we'll see where that storyline goes next. Let's bounce back to the Trump administration. LGBT activists have called for the Senate to block the appointment of a senior official who opposes the existence of gay politicians. An influential Senate committee this week will decide whether to confirm the nomination of Scott Garrett as president of the Export-Import Bank. Scott Garrett is a former member of the U.S. House of Representatives who lost his 2016 re-election campaign after a contentious battle over homophobic remarks. He had refused to pay his dues to the National Republican Congressional Committee, explaining in a Republican congressional meeting that he would boycott the National Committee because it had supported gay candidates. He took issue with this committee because it had, quote, actively recruited gay candidates and supported homosexuals in primaries. Well, his remarks lost him a string of the largest big business donors with Goldman Sachs among the Wall Street giants to end their support for him in the wake of his homophobia. Well, now he is up. He has been saved. This is from Pink News. I love this phrase. He has been saved from electoral oblivion by President Trump, who has rewarded his homophobia by handing him a cushy job heading the Export-Import Bank. And he would need to be confirmed by the Senate for that. Well, David Stacey, the human rights campaign's government affairs director, said this, quote, Scott Garrett is not qualified to be the president of the Export-Import Bank of the United States. It makes no sense to appoint someone to lead an institution he does not believe should exist. Among many House members with anti-LGBTQ records, Scott Garrett managed to stand out for his extreme positions on the inclusion of LGBTQ people in our country. The Trump Pence administration continues to dispatch anti-LGBTQ officials to all levels of government, and Garrett is simply another disgraceful agent in their crusade against equality. We urge the Senate to reject his nomination. So we will see what happens with that. In just horrible, horrible news, a transgender woman has been shot dead in what is now the deadliest year on record for trans people in the United States. There have now been 24 murders of trans people this year, and there are still two months left to go. And that 24, that number 24 murders of trans people this year, that's more than there were in either 2015 or 2016. There is so much more work to do, everybody. You cannot be complacent. You cannot be one of these people that says, oh my gosh, there's a coming out story on Disney Channel, which is amazing. And there's marriage equality, which is amazing. We're good. We're not good. We have to raise our voices for our vulnerable brothers and sisters. And my gosh, there is so much vulnerability in the trans community right now. So much more work to do.
A judge has resigned from the bench because he doesn't want to oversee same-sex adoptions. Judge Mitchell Nance, who presides over family court in Kentucky's 43rd Judicial District, caused a storm earlier this year after he banned cases involving gay families from his courtroom. Judge Nance's order registered an, quote, conscientious objection to the concept of adoption of a child by a practicing homosexual. He then sought to recuse himself from such cases on the grounds of, quote, matters of conscience. He claimed he cannot hear the cases because he believes there is no circumstance. He believes that there is no circumstance where the best interest of the child would be promoted by the adoption by a practicing homosexual. Well, after a probe was launched into his decision this week, he opted to resign from the bench entirely. The State Judicial Commission has filed ethics charges against him, accusing him of violating the Judicial Code of Conduct. And you're thinking, okay, well, that's the end of this guy, right? This is Judge Mitchell Nance. He said, I would rather resign than put kids who need amazing homes with gay parents. He is choosing to resign. Well, he's obviously through with his career, but as we're seeing in the great state of Alabama, no, he could become one day a senator. We got Chief Justice Roy Moore, twice removed from the Alabama Supreme Court, who is the GOP nominee for Senate there in the great state of Alabama, and even though it's a pretty close race, Alabama's a pretty hardcore Republican state, so Judge Roy Moore, twice removed from being the Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, he could win. He could absolutely win. So, hey, let me return to that Disney story because I said I would return to it. The One Million Moms, they have launched a boycott of the Disney Channel over this gay storyline. It's just fun to put their boycotts out there because they don't go anywhere. So it's, it's good to give them a little bit of attention because it just shows how futile they are, how little power they are. So that's the One Million Moms. They have a boycott that you probably don't know about because they're not very effective. But look, they're trying. Go team. A little bit more entertainment news, and I love this one. There is a new Netflix show coming out called The Runaways, and The Runaways is an amazing, amazing comic book. It's all about these six kids who find out that their parents are part of an evil organization, and then they run away, and then they start fighting back, and they all have superpowers. Well, one of these six kids is a lesbian, and she's got superpowers herself. Her name in the comics is Carolina Dean, and it's just always great to highlight, hey, there's a new show coming out and it has LGBT content. And it wasn't the only news of its kind this week. Glee and American Horror Story creator Ryan Murphy, he's making history with a new show that features a ton of transgender cast members. I love this. So he is putting out a new show. It's in development at FX. It's called Pose. It's set in the 1980s New York and it portrays life in the city's iconic queer ballroom culture. And you saw that in the iconic film Paris is Burning, which if you've not seen Paris is Burning, you must see that. It also tackles this new show Pose by Ryan Murphy. It will also tackle other segments of New York society. And there are going to be a number of transgender characters According to reports, this show will have the most transgender actors and actresses in their cast of any show in the United States in TV history. It's pretty darn exciting. These developments in the media, again, they make a huge, huge difference. They will. When we see representation, things get better. They do. 
on an individual level and on a society level. So Pose, that will be coming out soon enough. And that, my friends, is all the time we have for this week's episode. Our huge, huge thanks to Nathan Runkle. Again, he was first on the show eight and a half years ago. And to see how his life has developed and the incredible work he has done, I urge you to pick up that book. It's called Mercy for Animals. And you can, of course, go on over to mercyforanimals.org incredible work and it is saving the lives of millions and millions and millions of animals on this planet. This is life-saving work. And of course, our thanks to you all for listening. I urge you, get out there. Go use your voice the way you know how to use it to make a difference for your LGBTQ brothers and sisters, for all of our allies out there. And while you're out there using your voice, putting on your cape and making a difference, please remember, why be gay when you can be so gay.